verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we enter into this new series, a time of reflection in an extended way upon one of the great books of the Bible. Lord, let us begin to identify what our centers are. Where are we placing our trust in daily life? What are we looking to for hope and guidance and meaning? And as we identify our functional center, Lord, let us see that Jesus is offering to be our center, that he is the one who will never change, that he will always be present. And Father, as we consider your word, I pray that he would become more and more the center of our lives, the center of our hope for redemption. For those of us who are here looking in from the outside, considering what it might be, what it might look like to become a Christian, I pray that they too would see Jesus. They would see him in all of his glory and in all of his comfort, and all of his grace. As we embark on this journey, would you guide us? and Would you become more and more the center of the life here at InTown? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most hopeless characters in popular culture has got to be George Costanza. I used to watch Seinfeld so I could watch him just to feel better about myself. You can't help it. There's one episode where George begins to talk philosophically about our topic, hope. Where can you find hope? So he sits down, and of course, he has his conversation most of the time centers around his bad luck with women. And so as he sits down to talk to Jerry about, about hope, he has this to say. I mean, it's gotten to the point where I'm flirting with operators on the phone. I almost made a date with one. 
Jerry. So there's still hope. I don't want hope. Hope is killing me. My dream is to become hopeless. When you're hopeless, you don't care. And when you don't care, that indifference makes you attractive. So hopelessness is the key. It's my only hope. (laughs) At some level, we're all hoping for something. We're all living by some larger narrative that gives orientation to our lives, some way that we look to the future that brings coherence. Paul gives us the hope of the gospel. We're going to look at it as a word of truth, an organic power, and a message of grace. The hope of the gospel is a word of truth, an organic power, and a message of grace. First of all, a word of truth. Paul opens his letter as he normally does, commending the recipients for certain things that he sees operating in their midst. And in this case, it's faith and love. Now, Paul didn't plant the church at Colossae. He uh, sent someone else. Epaphras planted the church, so he doesn't know them personally. But word has gotten back to he and Timothy and perhaps some of his other colleagues about what is happening in the Colossians church, in the Colossian church. And he says that there is faith and there is love in your midst. Something very significant and something quite beautiful has happened in the Colossian church. Now, what's happened? He says it's because of the hope. He says there is faith and love operating in your midst because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This truth has come into the midst of the Colossian church and has created faith and love. It has caused them to hope in something different. And what Paul says is that it is a truth capital T. Now, David Brooks, the New York York Times columnist, wrote a column this last week where he interacts with the Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith, who led a study research team that conducted in-depth interviews with American youth. And he calls the title of of his column is, If It Feels Right. Now, from across America, they ask questions about how American youth made decisions. How did they frame their lives ethically and morally? What codes of ethics did they live by? And what the study uncovered is not that the younger generation is more immoral than other generations before it. In fact, they have very strongly held personal codes of ethics. But what is different from previous generations is that they readily admit that they have no basis outside of themselves or outside of their own affinity group for those ethics and for those morals. He says the default position, which most of them came back to again and again, is that moral choices are just a matter of individual taste. It's personal, they said. It's up to the individual. Who am I to say what others should do and think? Many were quick to talk about their moral feelings, but hesitant to link these feelings to any broader thinking about a shared moral framework or obligation. One, stu- one participant said, I mean, I guess what makes something right is how I feel about it. But different people feel different ways, so I couldn't speak on behalf of anyone else as to what's right and what's wrong. Now, this probably doesn't come as too much of a surprise to you because there's a general allergy in our culture to anyone making pronouncements about truth with a capital T. 
any person or any, indiv- any community that is trying to universalize their views and persuade others to adopt their viewpoints. It's considered narrow. It's considered kind of old-fashioned and provincial. But just because you're trying to persuade someone of truth doesn't necessarily mean that you're being narrow. Persuading someone to adopt your view may be an enormously loving thing to do. A parent who says, son or daughter, you're not going to run in the street, is not being authoritarian and overbearing. They're being loving and caring. If a government asks its citizens to evacuate the path of a storm, it's not being totalitarian. It's just being protective. And if a friend invites you to consider some truth that would give you coherence in an incoherent world, if a friend invites you to consider something other than what you're currently believing that leads you to find hope in the midst of tragic circumstances, wouldn't that be a very loving thing? Paul is talking about truth with a capital T, the truth of the gospel that tells you about a hope that exists outside of your circumstances, outside of your moral efforts, outside of what is going on in your world that can exist and bring coherence to an incoherent world. And notice, for some of those who, among us who may be worried that talking about the truth would lead to, lead to self-righteousness and to pious moralizing, notice what happens when this truth comes to Colossae. It draws them into the concerns of other people. It draws them to put faith not in their own efforts at moral reform, but in the work of Jesus, to look outside themselves. It's a very humiliating and humbling approach to truth. And it creates a self-donating ideal that they lean into the concerns of those around them, not to persuade them to believe what they believe, but to persuade them of the truth of the gospel. What Jesus says brings meaning, brings life, brings hope in the midst of a fallen world. At the center of their lives, this truth doesn't focus them them on their own piety, but the life of Jesus and the hope that he has given them. The gospel is a word of truth that points to a real hope. It's also an organic power. As the gospel explodes into someone's life or into a church, it's an organic power that changes the recipients from the inside out. Notice Paul's prayer. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. As we look at this letter, we will see that Paul is simply not content with cognitive approaches to the faith. Following Jesus is more than just what you know, but it is about a total response of life, and it involves the total person. The truth of the gospel doesn't only change your mind, but it takes root and changes your life as well. Bearing fruit, Paul says, growing in the knowledge and understanding of the Lord and in your pursuit of Him. It's an organic process that takes place because something systemically has changed in the system, that the root has changed, that your center has changed, that the center of your life that once was self-referential now becomes Jesus and His gospel alone. And as that takes root, 
your life begins to adjust. It begins to take shape more in the image of Jesus himself. The Christian faith, in contrast to all other religions, emphasizes that the way that one comes to God is not through their own moral efforts. That in fact, our own efforts at self-reform, at moral reform, are the thing that we need to be saved from. It's not only that our sinfulness needs forgiveness, but that also all of the good things that we do in an effort to gain God's approval and love, that we need forgiveness of that for that as well. And this is hugely important because this is the very center of what distinguishes Christianity from all other approaches to God. But notice Paul's prayer for the Colossians. It doesn't stop there. He prays that they would be filled with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that the Colossians would walk worthily, would please him, would bear fruit, would grow. So which is it, Paul? Does the gospel invite people to forsake their own efforts at self-salvation and cling to Jesus alone? Or does it invite people to please God and to walk worthily of him? For Paul, it's not either or. It's both and. While it may make some of us uncomfortable, Paul moves fluidly between pointing the Colossians to Jesus alone while commending them for their faith and love and for the change that is taking place in the life of the church. Now, as we go through Colossians, we're going to hear Paul, the great systematizer of the faith, talking about obedience. And this is only possible. True obedience is only possible when when the hope of the gospel has taken root in your life. If we're still trying to earn our salvation, we'll do the right thing in order to gain God's attention or better our chances at getting something from him. In other words, we're manipulating him. We're trying to follow the law. We're trying to be good moral people in order to get God's smile, in order to gain his approval, in order that he'll answer our prayers in the affirmative. Only when we understand Jesus and his work, that he is the center of the Christian faith, do you begin to be able to obey God out of gladness and not for what he will give you. Only in the gospel, only in the free grace of Jesus do you love people for their sake and not yours? Do you do good for its sake, not yours? Do you obey God for his sake and not your sake? Only the gospel makes pleasing God a joy rather than a means to an end. If you're a Christian this morning, not only are you a sinner in need of Jesus' work, but you have been made You have been given an inheritance. You've been made a son or daughter of the king. And as such, Paul is able to pray for for Colossae, able to pray for in town that you would bear fruit. Because you're a new kind of tree. You've been remade. You have been organically reoriented to grow in knowledge, to grow in wisdom, to grow in understanding, and to attach yourself to a life a discipleship. Now, I've been fighting a losing battle in my backyard with the root system. And a few months ago, uh, a bunch of trucks came in and they, t- they cut down about four huge poplar trees behind our back fence. 
And if you know anything about poplar trees is that they grow really fast. And I don't know much about gardening or tree root systems or anything like that, but the only thing I can think is that once they cut these trees down, then the root system that was already underground began to try and find spring up in new places, that all of the nutrients weren't going to the trees. Now they're going to the roots. And so a month after those four trees got cut down, uh, new root systems begin to pop up all over our yard. And I've been finding uh, poplar uh, roots underneath our yard that are like four and five inches in diameter. It's gotten so bad, it's lifted up our back porch because it's growing up under the supports of our porch. And so I've been like Captain Ahab and the whale, going, you know, finding out every root and digging it up and, and cutting it and then seeing it spring up somewhere else. In spite of all of my best efforts, in spite of everything that's working against that root system, it's still sending up roots. It's still growing because that's what it's made to do. The verse that we read in the Gospels is Jesus' words that a good tree is going to bear good fruit. And if you have been remade with the hope of the gospel, if your center has been changed from self-service to the service to Jesus, if your only hope is the gospel of Jesus, then you will begin to change. And that can be a legitimate prayer that you will bear fruit, that you will grow because your root system has changed. The hope of change is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The gospel is a a word of truth. It's also an organic power that explodes into your life and changes you from the inside out. It's also a message of grace. This is the nature of the message of the gospel, is that it's not about you. That in the gospel, Jesus himself is at work in your life through you, around you, and sometimes in spite of you. Jesus is bearing fruit through your life if you are in him. Andy Crouch is a a journalist that I really enjoy reading, and he is always on the lookout for things and people and places that our popular culture is placing their hope, placing their significance in. And unfortunately for me, he turns his attention in one column to those who look at Apple products for transcendence. He says, the genius of Steve Jobs has been to persuade us, at least for a little while, that cold comfort is enough. The world, at least the part of the world in our laptop bags and our pockets, the devices that display our unique lives to others and reflect them to ourselves, will get better. This is the sense in which the tired old cliche of the Apple faithful and the cult of Mac is true. It is a religion of hope in a hopeless world. Hope that your ordinary mortal life can be elegant and meaningful, even if it will soon be dated, dusty, and discarded like a 2001 iPod. The book of Colossians recommends another hope entirely. It says, the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, that this is the thing that's bearing fruit. It is their hope that is something outside of them that has begun to change them from the inside out. The hope that he's referring to in the first verse, excuse me, the first verses of our passage is not a subjective amount. That is how much can you generate? 
How intense can your hope be? But it's an objective hope which rests in the eternal truths of the gospel. It's a hope that is protected, that is guarded in heaven. It's a a hope that resides there and is not subject to the whims of our conscience or how you feel or how strong your faith is. That hope is always there. That hope is ever-present. It is true no matter how you feel about it. He says in verse 12, Thanks to the Father who makes you fit to share in the inheritance. That is salvation in its largest, largest sense that he has qualified you if you're a Christian, that he has made you acceptable, that he has granted you an inheritance. The Father, it says in verse 13, has rescued you from the dominion of darkness. He has transferred you to the kingdom of light. He has qualified you for a great inheritance. Now, I said Paul moves fluidly between calling you to look to Jesus alone for all of your hope to also commending the Colossian church for the work that is going on there, for their faith and love. But there is clearly a priority in Paul's thinking. If you're a Christian, you didn't reason your way to God. Your moral efforts didn't afford you audience with him. It wasn't because you were smarter. It wasn't because you had figured it out. It wasn't because you read more books than anyone else did. It wasn't anything about you that made God look upon you with favor. It is only his grace. It is only the message of grace, the hope of the gospel. It is what resides there that Jesus looked upon you with favor and says, come to me. Let me make you acceptable. Despite all of your best efforts at self-reform and moralizing, you are an utter moral failure. (laughs) But let me make you acceptable. Let me grant you my inheritance, that you would share in it equally with me. That's a message of grace. That is a beautiful message that, if understood, begins to change you. Because you can't believe that, really, deeply, and not be changed. You can't understand that the God of the universe offers you his own son, free of charge, and then go live your life just as you always have. You begin to change organically. You begin to change out of gratitude, out of gladness, out of an amazement at what Jesus has done for you in the gospel. It wasn't anything that you had done, and in fact, in spite of so much that you had done, that he initiates grace in your life. What you were unable to do, he does on your behalf. He makes you fit. He rescues you. That's the message of grace. It's a word of truth that can be trusted. It's a hope that never changes. It's an organic power that will change you as an individual and change this church from the inside out. And it's also a message of grace that points you outside of yourself and your own moral efforts to Jesus, to his work alone. That's the message of grace that will stand behind our study of Colossians, and which is the foundation for any and all spiritual hope. Let's pray now as we continue to worship. Father, I pray for this church. I pray that we would be a place where you are celebrated, where you are worshipped, where you are our center, that everything that you give us to do in in the Bible that we would do gladly, 
that we would do out of gratitude, not to earn our way into your favor or into your embrace, but because we have it already. Father, I pray that for those of us who are looking in from the outside, I pray that you would let the gospel be a beautiful invitation to hope. And Lord, let us walk ever more closely to you as we continue our worship service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.